welcome to Mike Linus. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back. Can I tell you about my most anticipated movie of the year? It's going to be at the Tribeca Film Festival, and it's a documentary called Enter the Clones of Bruce. I'm not sure to what extent I've brought this up on the podcast before, but I've talked to Luke about it many times. I've (laughs) talked his ear off about it, but probably the thing I'm most obsessed with in this world is that after Bruce Lee died in 1973, a whole industry of Bruce Lee imitators sprang up. And because he was like the one Asian star who had international exportability, there was a market for movies that could be passed off as fake Bruce Lee movies. He only made four completed action movies between 1971 and 1973. So you had people like Bruce Lai, Bruce Le, Dragon Lee, Bruce Lung, uh, not their real names. <laughs> When I was a kid, most of these movies fell into the public domain and I would watch them on these like cheap DVDs that you'd get from Walmart that were like sold in bulk, basically. <laughs> Man, I remember those, uh, not not the Bruce Lee variety specifically, but where they, I guess it was like Walmart's way of monetizing their overstock where you get these bundles where it's like three movies for $8 and they're just sort of awkwardly like held together with tape and plastic and it'd be like the most disparate movies ever. Or sometimes it'd be these weird, like they would actually have boxes where it'd be like one box for two movies, but they'd they'd just be like completely disparate movies. That's what you're talking about? Similar, but then also like there were fly-by-night companies that would just deal in public domain movies, you know, movies that had no copyright owners. So like anybody could make a DVD out of them. And this is before like the internet pretty much destroyed the marketplace for, you know, selling 25 copies of Night of the Living Dead in bulk to a corner (laughs) drugstore or... 30 copies of um, Orson Welles in The Stranger or uh, Abbott and Costello in Africa Screams. There's like a public domain canon. No care or effort would be put into these. So they'd be the worst looking, you know, versions of these movies possible. And I would watch these movies with Bruce Lai and think, why aren't more people interested in this? This is fucking incredible that this happened. That, that you know, that a guy, a guy named Bruce, you know, his real name was Ho Chung Dao, and they gave him a, you know, Bruce Lee haircut, and they, and and he was he was a stunt man from Taiwan, and they were like, here's your path to stardom: pretend to be Bruce Lee in like five movies, and then. You we, then we turn Ho Chung Dao into a star, and he was like, "Okay," and, and then it's like, "Okay, I get to be I get to be Ho Chung Dao in the next movie, right?" And it's like, "No, no, you don't." So you're still gonna be Bruce Lee. And uh, honestly, you know, between you and me, I think if you take Ho Chung Dao's filmography. There are more good movies in there than there are in Bruce Lee's filmography. Wow, big words. Uh, I'm not saying Ho Chung Dao is better than Bruce Lee, <laughs> but I'm saying I would watch Soul Brothers of Kung Fu before I watch The Big Boss any day. <laughs> I would watch Deadly Strike before I watch Way of the Dragon. It's it's simply the case. And this this guy was just one of many people, right? Yeah, he was one of he was kind of the prestige one. He had the right. best movies. Like I mean, the highest tier Elvis impersonator. Bruce La. Is, is funny because, you know, Bruce Lai didn't like imitating Bruce Lee. He was ashamed of it. Uh, but Bruce Lai just, he's, Bruce Lai still goes by Bruce Lai. He, wor- he works in the Chinese film industry to this day. He makes historical propaganda films now and he still credits himself as Bruce Lai, which I think is And he's still beautiful. like playing Bruce Lee? Not anymore, really. I mean, he Interesting. makes... So the Bruce Lai like persona has become a, it's taken on a sort of identity of its own. That, yeah, that's his, his English language name wow. now, pretty much you know he doesn't make high level chinese propaganda films he makes kind of lower level ones but he's still active and uh dragon lee is now i think a successful businessman in south korea i think he's in the tv industry bruce lung had a comeback he was the villain in the movie kung fu hustle and i'm so excited for this documentary because they're all in it you know the the guy who made it got interviews with all of them so went to taiwan and found the martial arts studio and gymnasium where bruce lai ho chung dao now you know teaches children and old people and you know he seems he seems alive and well oh we should get him on the pod <laughs> oh, i would i would give anything to meet bruce lai and tell him how much his work means to me <laughs> I love the idea of you going around as a kid, like watching these cheaply made DVDs that are like a monetized bit of like public domain IP and being like, why don't more people care about this? What people, you know, what people should care about is the idea that Bruce Lee was popular enough 
when he died to spawn an entire industry of people ripping him off. What's the one that, uh, I don't know if it's still there, but at your old apartment in your bathroom, you had a picture for years that was like a poster where it was like, Bruce Lee strikes back from beyond the grave and he's like busting out of a grave and fighting zombies or something. Okay. That's not a real Bruce Lee movie, right? So Bruce Lee fights back from the grave. I'm glad you asked. (laughs) That's actually what it's called. (laughs) Well, not originally. It was a South Korean martial arts film called The Stranger from Korea. And Terry Levine, an American distributor who dealt in, you know, kung fu movies and exploitation films, he bought it and he shot a 30 second segment at the beginning of the film that shows Bruce Lee's tombstone and then like lightning strikes and a guy jumps out of the ground. And if you pause it, it's like a white guy in blue jeans. It's, you know, it's it's not, you know, (laughs) but you have to pause it to see that. And then the rest of the movie just plays as is. The rest of the movie is just like a guy comes from Korea to find his friend and his career and his his friend's been murdered and he uncovers like a, a mob world conspiracy the rest of the movie has nothing to do uh, with it so Bruce Lee's not even like Bru- in it in Bruce Lee is not in it in any meaningful sense either thematically <laughs> or oh. as a presence and one of the things that I'm proudest of in my whole life is that when I was a teenager I called up the guy who starred in that movie <laughs> <laughs> who is credited in the film as Bruce K.L. Lee, L-E-A. Uh, his actual name is John Chong, and he runs a Taekwondo school in Los Angeles. And I called him up and he, he said, uh, uh, yeah, he was very mad when they changed his name. He thought about he thought about suing them, but, uh, you know, it costs a lot of money to do a lawsuit. So uh, it, he, he still he still felt the wounds from that. He didn't set out to be a Bruce Lee clone. They just, it was imposed upon him. Unleashed to wreak vengeance on the evil ones who brought about his untimely death. Five years ago, Bruce Lee, king of kung fu and undisputed master of the martial arts, was buried, but not before making a deal with the Black Angel of Death. Well, if I can just free associate for a second before we turn to other matters, uh, you're reminding me of a disappointment I had when I was, I don't know, eight years old. And I was in the th- like the deepest throes of just like only watching Jim Carrey movies. And so I wanted to be a completist about that. And there were a few things that were kind of. And so did you yeah. watch like Jim Carrey with one R? Well, or, there was uh... <laughs> it wasn't quite on that level. I mean, there you know, there were like a couple uh, layers of disappointments that happened. There was like watching The Cable Guy which just is kind of like a weird movie and it wasn't like a Jim Carrey comedy. A little like disquieting, ex- yeah. Yeah, which honestly, we should do an episode on The Cable Guy at some point. I'm curious to it's, like- It's kind of good, that. Well, I that's kind of right? what I'm yeah. thinking, yeah. yeah. But the other one, and this, this is the one I thought of uh, when you were talking just now, was there was a movie called High Strung. Oh, God. Yo, I can tell by your reaction yeah. that you know where this is going. So High Strung was some kind of an independent movie. It was a bit of, I think it was sort of like a one-act play. It, it was a vehicle- drama. It was a vehicle for Bob Odenkirk. Or, no, Steve Odenkirk, not I, Bob Odenkirk. I, lo- I love you. Steve, I'm, Steve I'm, br- I'm bringing this up. You know, Will. nothing nothing escapes Will. You know, it's like I'm bringing up this like obscure movie from the 1990s and he knows, you know, that it's a vehicle for some guy called Odenkirk. Steve Odenkirk, who went on to direct and star in Kung Pao Enter the Fist. Sure, <laughs> surely, you, surely you heard of that. That comedy film uh, fr- from the early 2000s. Well, anyway, yeah, hi- high, high, strong. Got Jim's face on the box. Yeah, and it's and and the tagline on the on the VHS tape at Blockbuster. It said at the top, featuring Jim Carrey, even better than he was in Ace Ventura. So featuring is the word that should have tipped oh, you off. Oh my God, yeah. Because not it's not starring. It's featuring. Yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I can't remember the movie, uh, the other movie I watched as a kid that was billed as as having a special appearance by Eric Idle, which was something else I definitely should not have rented. What, what was that movie? Well, I want to say Dudley Do-Right, but I think it was something where, where Eric Idle was in it even even less wow. than Dudley Do-Right. It was whatever it was, it was not good. But, the, the playgrounds across America were, yeah. you know... The, there was a great disturbance it, yeah. in the force. It, it was a dark yeah, day was, when they found yeah. out that Eric Idle was not fully <laughs> yeah. committed to whatever cash grab that was. Yeah, yeah. And it was the same thing with this Jim Carrey movie because this this movie High Strung. All I remember about it is yeah, kind of a one man you know chamber drama where there's you know an, an eponymously high strung guy played by this Odenkirk fella later of Kung Pao Fist or whatever, <laughs> uh, and where where he keeps being sort of visited by these visions where it's like literally he's just walking around his apartment. I don't know he's like neurotic or whatever. He's high strung. 
And then you'll just see these flashes where it's like three seconds of Jim Carrey wearing like a shittily made Halloween costume as the devil. And he'll just be like, ooh, I'm going to visit you tonight. Very spooky or whatever. And then I think Jim Carrey actually is in one scene at the end. Like, you know, the the plot is that he's going to get visited by the devil or something at the end of the day. And then I guess it happens. But I can't remember what the takeaway is. I think it's like, is it the devil's a real guy or the devil is supposed to be symbolic of something? Whatever. I don't even know. Look, I don't want to beat up on High Strung or Mr. Odenkirk later of Enter the Fist uh, fame or whatever. Maybe this is a good independent film from the 90s. I don't know. I don't I, I don't know, think so. Probably not. <laughs> but all I know is that as a child who was expecting Liar Liar or Dumb and Dumber or The Mask, this was not what I was looking for. So I'm guessing you didn't you didn't encounter a little movie called Rubber Face in your travels. Wait, is that like a is that like a The Mask ripoff? No, okay, this was the ultimate wrong turn <laughs> Jim for Jim Carrey's exploitation. For for child Jim Carrey fans. <laughs> One day in every grocery store checkout aisle in Canada, and possibly in the United States as well, appeared this VHS tape of a movie called Rubber Face that had Jim Carrey on it. And the the, the box was, what? it was his face, like, it was like just a photo of him that was distorted and made really weird, like, so that his hair was like Ace Ventura and, like, his face was all fucked up in, like, a wacky way. Like, you know, somebody went and photoshopped his face so that he'd look ultra wacky. In fact, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show Luke what the, what the VHS box looked like. And it had there, there's something there's something uncannily familiar about that. It's not a specific memory. It's like a residual emotion, and it's very unpleasant. I definitely saw this, and I don't like what it's uh, what it's conjuring in me. It has the tagline: "Big head, thin skin, numb skull." And then it has another tagline <laughs> that says, "Comedy." Jim Carrey, even better than he was in High Strung. <laughs> it has a it has a tagline that says, "Comedy is not pretty." So this again, every grocery store checkout aisle in Canada, and kind of on my the edge of my seat here like what is the what what ha- what was happening here i mean what is this it, it, you look at it it's like this looks too it's called rubber face oh my god it's called <laughs> rubber face he's doing he's doing faces and what it actually was was a 45 minute like made for tv movie that was canadian no. from from 1983 that had the original title introducing janet and they just slapped the title rubber face on it when he became famous and mostly it is a drama about an overweight high school girl who needs to learn self-esteem and she's like an amateur joke writer and he's an amateur comedian jim carrey who's like 19 years old or something when he made this movie 1920 and his his thing is he wants to be a comedian and he's got talent but his material is really bad like he can't write material so the two of them team up and they learn a little bit from each other and it's shot in you know like for want of a better term canada vision where it just looks like imagine a shitty made for tv canadian movie from the early 80s and that's what it looks like and jim carrey is in it and he's doing his shtick but it is mostly a drama about like this this girl learning self-esteem and it's only 45 minutes and so some really cynical person at the height of jim carrey mania was like all right we We got money to be made this speaks to for younger listeners who may not understand this speaks to how big jim carrey was for a few years in the 90s there there was one was like one year the mask dumb and dumber and ace ventura and ace ventura pet detective all came out January, summer, December. Yeah, if you weren't there, if you are, if you are part of a Gen Z, for example, I cannot impress on you enough how big of a deal Jim Carrey was for. Like he was the biggest thing, like in the world for a few years in the nineties. And so, actually, the way to understand it is watch the movie Batman Forever because if you were watching it for the first time today, you will probably not find him funny. No. A lot of those movies don't hold up at all. Ace Ventura is a terrible movie. Okay, but... To say nothing of, well, some things in it. (laughs) But Batman Forever, he is doing the most, like, structureless, pure improv, directionless tomfoolery, uh, (laughs) which is, I I think it was Tommy Lee Jones who said to him on the set, I cannot sanction your buffoonery. (laughs) Have you ever heard that story? Yeah, good good for him. Yeah, but at the time, there was a massive psychosis in the air which was that anything this guy did was funny oh my god and you just had to have been there at the time uh-huh. so um before before we get into the movie uh what else uh, what else you got <laughs> do we have any serious business to discuss well i'm gonna play something for you this is just out i guess that ron DeSantis is not quite as popular in florida as people thought i assume among other things that they don't want their social security cut or their medicare cut can't do that ron 
You know, he's no, right. We're getting lots of job requests from people currently working for the Social Security Medicare cutting. The sanctimonious campaign. <laughs> Ron's poll numbers are dropping so fast and furious that many people are speculating he's not going to run. He just hired Kiss of Death, Jeffro. He's a kiss of death. I can tell you a lot of the people that we defeated who were represented by Jeffro. Kiss of Death. Who dropped Young Kim. You know who Young Kim is? To see if he can help. And he's going to help Ron. But I don't think he's going to help him much, because I'm leading in Texas by 42 points, Iowa and New Hampshire by a lot, overall by close to 40, and by 10 against the scammer, Joe Biden. Thank you. Oh, man. percent of the public think that your former president, Donald J. Trump, me, is being treated very unfairly for political reasons, and due to the fact that he is leading in all of the polls, 80% of the people agree with that. I say these prosecutorial scams and hoaxes are all about election interference, and Republican leadership must get tough and must be smart. But we're not going to have a country left. Thank you. Oh, man. I, you know, to everyone who said that he's lost his juice. Okay, well, you know, I've been following the Trump-DeSantis thing pretty closely because, you know, it's always been clear that the outcome of, of this, you know, feud, rivalry, whatever you want to call it, was going to have profound implications, obviously, for the future of the Republican Party, but also was going to tell us something very important about the present state of right-wing politics. Now, if we can wind back past those uh, poll numbers that Donald Trump was pretty uh, humorously citing uh, a few moments ago, wind back to November right after the midterms, it's already easy to forget where things were at. There was a widespread perception that, you know, obviously, I mean, this wasn't a perception. The midterms did not go very well for the Republican Party. If Andrew Cuomo hadn't allowed the GOP to gerrymander New York, getting people like George Santos or whatever his name is into Congress, uh, the the Republicans wouldn't even have had like the thin majority, like Kevin McCarthy wouldn't be speaker. They wouldn't even have the thin majority that they ultimately did get. Ron DeSantis absolutely crushed in Florida. In 2018, he got elected over Andrew Gillum, his Democratic opponent, by just a few points. He won by 18 points in November. Republican, you know, big donors, the kind of people who were funding the Jeb Bush campaign in 2016, they thought, finally, the nightmare is over. We're going to be able to do, you know, DeSantisism in one country. Uh, we can finally be rid of Donald Trump, who is embarrassing to us. And look, you know, he's, and this was perfectly fair on their part. I mean, they, they thought, look, Donald Trump has made every thing in Republican politics about himself. It's all about, you know, he's being persecuted. Uh, it makes us sound like losers. It's 2022, almost 2023. Why are we talking about the 2020 election, how it was stolen, etc.? So Ron DeSantis was going to be their guy. And, you know, the appeal of Ron DeSantis, such as it was, such as it is, is that Ron DeSantis basically, you know, he's a, he's a pretty conventional Republican machine politician, in my view. And his political talent, such as it is, is to just take whatever the right-wing cause celebra du jour is, he, he takes it and he runs with it. You know, he goes to war with Disney. He panders to whatever the most like insane COVID politics are, all the stuff, you know, being driven heavily by right-wing evangelicals and by, you know, these absolute freaks like uh, Matt Walsh, you know, these kind of um, the, the would-be intellectuals of the online right, you know, these bills targeting transgender people and other things like those. Ron, Ron DeSantis just like leans as heavily into that stuff as he possibly can. And so the big Republican donors thought, okay, this is it. This is our vehicle. That's where things were at in November. And what has happened since then, obviously you've had the Trump indictment. That plays uh, some role in all this. But what's happened uh, since then is a process that I think can only be called the Jebification of Ron DeSantis. I think it's very interesting in that video that we just watched from Trump that he's doing something that is kind of a callback to 2016. And I don't just mean being incredibly cruel and insulting to like a Republican opponent. Notice that he's also talking about, you know, Social Security and things like that. I mean, this was one of the really novel features. Uh, we shouldn't exaggerate, of course, how actually novel it was. But in terms of the rhetoric and the messaging, Donald Trump did embrace a kind of, I don't know, I'll say just as a shorthand, don't have time to unpack it now, a, a, a kind of economic populism that was um, very unusual, very atypical, very heterodox for the Republican Party. And it seems like he's doing that again. He's also doing all kinds of other vintage 2016 stuff like, you know, 
implying that Ron DeSantis is a groomer, that kind of thing. I mean, his super PAC has started running an ad. Have you seen Donald Trump's Pudding Fingers ad? The mere institution of a Pudding Fingers ad is, is pretty funny in and of itself. But basically, Politico had some scoop a few weeks back where, you know, there's, sort of report, there's been a lot of reporting over the past few weeks on just kind of what a weird person DeSantis is. The fact that he actually seems not very good at basic retail politics. You know, one of the many ways he got owned by Trump over the past week was that uh, this Florida congressman went into a meeting with DeSantis and then put out a statement after that was like, well, I just had a great meeting with uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. Anyway, I'm, I've decided to endorse Donald Trump for the, you know, so this kind of thing keeps happening. Donald Trump is absolutely cleaning up in endorsements, including in Florida, which is supposed to be DeSantis's little fiefdom. And it seems like one of the, um, I'm forgetting the name of the CNN reporter who this week had a story about DeSantis. Like he's not very good at just like he doesn't maintain communication, personal communication with members members of the Florida GOP delegation, this guy, this congressman who endorsed Trump, I think it's the same guy who complained like, well, when I when I was in hospital, Donald Trump like called me to ask me how I was doing. Whenever I talk to the governor, it's just like through his aides or whatever. So that's a part of it. But then there's also these anecdotes coming through. And this, this is I'm coming to the pudding thing. Like there was some meeting Ron DeSantis was in a few years ago where multiple sources confirmed that they alleged that he was eating pudding with his fingers like during the meeting. So you can imagine what Trump is doing with that. So in the Trump uh pudding finger attack ad like it's talking about uh yeah ron DeSantis wants to cut social security and that kind of stuff but then the conceit of it is like he wants to dip his fingers into your social security so there's just these big put like these big fingers like scooping out pudding it's very funny but so this is all very vintage 2016 the conventional wisdom is that DeSantis is still going to run but i really have been wondering for the past uh I don't know, a couple months, like maybe DeSantis doesn't even run at this point. I mean, I think that he is in kind of an insoluble dilemma. He's not a talented enough politician to actually run a campaign against Donald Trump and attack him. And if he did that, it probably wouldn't work anyway, because like Trump is still like he just has this relationship with, you know, the Republican base that I feel like no other modern figure has had. But then if he doesn't do that, like he's kind of opted to like defend Donald Trump against the indictment and try to like, you know, when when he goes low, I go high. But then that's just let it, left him in this position where he's like defending Trump while Donald Trump is like running ads with like fingers scooping up pudding and calling him a groomer. So it's kind of a lose-lose situation. Well, look, I know Jonathan Chait is some low-hanging fruit, but he had an article in New York Magazine a couple weeks ago uh, with the title, Why Liberals Should Hope DeSantis Beats Trump. Oh my God. And the sub had the phrase lesser evil very much applies here. And, you know, it's a very thin article. It basically comes down to one, DeSantis will be easier to beat in the general than Trump, which uh, may or may not be true. I don't know. But the other fulcrum of his argument is that Trump would likely be more dangerous as president. And uh, his line of argument is, you know, a, a familiar one. You know, we just barely kept the forces of war and chaos and martial law at bay under Trump. If a guy who's legislating like book bans and passing the don't say gay bill as president, what those forces are going to be held back? Well, I mean, <laughs> you'll be interested. Uh, not surprised to learn that the article nowhere mentions anything you know the, right. the, the word trans or transgender is not mentioned right. in it at all and DeSantis has created the model for the kind of anti-trans grooming hysteria that is running wild at the state level you could easily make the argument that Trump is the lesser of the two evils I'm personally just sick of the I mean this thing that a particular style of liberal commentator still wants to do I mean again this is a throwback to 2016 where yeah there's these articles where yeah we're supposed to cheer for oh Mitt Romney is endorsing Mark Rubio and John Kasich like the resistance begins now it's like just forget about it stop trying to save like the institutions of the right the right does not want to be saved and we shouldn't want to save it anyway. I'm just, I'm baffled why this many years after 2016, people are still trying to argue that there is some kind of moral distinction or that you as a non-Republican are supposed to get invested in like one particular future for the Republican Party or another. Forget about it. Well, an eagle needs both its wings to fly. <laughs> Before we get to the movie... Do we oh. have a public service announcement? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Uh, there are some <laughs> things that I want to ask of you, the listeners, as well as some things I'd like to offer you, the listeners. And for after that, I have a word from our sponsors at Crooked Media. Thank you. Uh, Patreon.com slash Michael and Us. We have an extra episode every week there for the mere sum of five Yankee dollars. If you want more content, if you love the show, if you love us... 
you should get on there. Yeah, there are thousands of you who listen via the Jacobin radio feed, and you may not even realize uh, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Michael and us, as Will said, where you get twice as much content every week and also some bonus content. Uh, most recently, an interview I did with uh, Will Summer, journalist from the Daily Beast, about his uh, magisterial new take on QAnon, Trust the Plan, the rise of QAnon and the conspiracy that unhinged America. You can also hear probably our most popular episode of late for reasons I don't fully understand, which was our episode on the Super Mario Brothers movie, which has gotten us quite a few subscribers. Join the movement. I mean, that's what happens when you talk about movies that people are seeing now, you know, (laughs) and that people want to hear about. In addition to that, again, patreon.com slash Michael and us, we have a favor to ask of you. Can you guys please rate and review us on your podcast app? I mean, look, the podcast is killing it. We know that. (laughs) But we could be killing it more. (laughs) The, The algorithms... The metrics, I don't know how they work, but what I do know, because learned men have told me, <laughs> is that if if you rate and review the podcast, and a lot of people do it, it helps. That's right. And, uh, you know, we're still making up for the one-star review we got a couple of oh, years don't, ago. Don't, over... even, <laughs> don't even acknowledge that, that fucker. You shouldn't have been cruel to Tom Hanks. What can yeah, I say? Yeah. Now... On to our main subject for the episode. Let's take a plane from Florida all the way over to Thatcher-era England. A plane and a time machine, I guess. A DeLorean, perhaps. (laughs) With Stephen Freer's 1985 classic, My Beautiful Laundrette. The beginning of a business empire. Nothing but a toilet and a youth club. Constant boil on my bum. How's your foot there? Work now till you go back to college. I'm fixing you up with a job with your uncle. Only you have to know how to squeeze the tits of the system. Okay. I'll charge you basic rent. Above that, you keep. Jack Kroll of Newsweek calls my beautiful laundrette a sharp, sophisticated, funny, sexy, compassionate picture. A delightful surprise in every way. Oh, one thing more. Try and fix him up with a nice girl. I'm not sure his penis is in full working order. Yeah, so this is a film I'm I'm very uh, excited to discuss. I mean, I think, in my humble opinion, this is one of the great British films of the 1980s, if not one of the great British films. This is a film which deals in themes of race and class and multiculturalism and sexuality in Thatcher-era Britain. And to set the stage a little bit, I want to offer two pieces of context before we get into talking about the movie directly. This is a pre-record. When this one comes out, you're going to be in the land down under. But we are actually recording this on the anniversary of a very important anti-fascist action that happened in 1977 uh, that I had the opportunity to write about a few years ago for Jacobin. I was very pleased earlier today to see it republished by Tribune. Um, This was an event called the Battle of Wood Green. And the reason I bring this up is because, you know, it is set in the mid-1980s in South London, in the Battersea area. Now, the Battle of Wood Green didn't happen in South London. It happened in Herringay. But without going uh, too much into the details of it, I mean, basically, it was a clash between a number of thugs from the National Front, Britain's fascist party, and a much larger contingent of anti-fascist demonstrators who organized to stop the National Front from marching in this multicultural neighborhood. There was a, uh, I think, 28-year-old Herring gay counselor named uh, Jeremy Corbyn who was heavily involved in these efforts. Now, this summer, uh, 1977, uh, this was one of two major confrontations that essentially broke the back of the British far right for a generation. I don't think that that's too much of an exaggeration to say. Uh, This film, as I said, happens a little bit after that confrontation. And so, you know, the the far right has become, you know, a little bit diffuse, although it's still uh, kind of menacing over parts of South London, as we see in the film. The National Front was very, very organized uh, throughout the 1970s. I mean, they were scoring well electorally in certain boroughs like Bethnal Green uh, in the 70s. In the council election, they got 19 percent. Hackney South, 19 percent, Stepney 16 and a half percent. And I mean, this was a kind of organized racist brutality that, you know, repeatedly threatened local residents. To give you an example of, uh, you know, the kinds of things the National Front was doing, I just want to read a passage here I quoted in the article, which describes what a typical National Front street action looked like. Skinhead youngsters, many wearing badges, saying NF rules, okay, 
NFT shirts or with copies of NF News in their pockets had been gathering at the top of Brick Lane since about 11 a.m. Some had come from Peckham, Ealing, Putney. Some came in minibuses at about 12 noon after an NF meeting. A group of white youths marched down the lane clapping and shouting, the National Front is a white man's front. The police had all suddenly disappeared. Then 150 white youths ran down Brick Lane shouting, kill the black bastards and smashing the windows of a dozen shops and the car windscreens of Bengali shopkeepers. 50 five-year-old Abdul Mohan was knocked unconscious by a hail of rocks and stones hurled towards his shop window. The police said the, quote, spontaneous outbreak happened just at the time they were changing their shift and they were totally unprepared. So that describes, you know, just one such incident. And there were many things like this throughout the 1970s. There was a Guardian reporter named Martin Walker who wrote in 1977 a a book in which he very worryingly speculated that it was not inconceivable to imagine that the National Front might actually actually explode into power. That was the phrase that he used. So, you know, it's the late it's late 1970s in Britain. I mean, British capitalism is crumbling. British social democracy is collapsing. And the Battle of Wood Green, as the late Jamaican-born British Marxist Stuart Hall wrote in his classic essay from 1979, The Great Moving Right Show, uh, he noted against this incredibly bleak background of the late 1970s and early 1980s in Britain, these two big anti-fascist confrontations were some of the only bright spots in what was otherwise a very bleak picture. So that's one piece of context for the world of my beautiful laundrette. All of this takes place in sort of the immediate after aftermath of this kind of organized far-right street violence. Now, I do just want to offer one additional piece of context about Thatcherism itself before we get into my beautiful laundrette. Now, I mentioned Stuart Hall, who wrote this, uh, I mean, this remarkably perceptive essay, which was published, I think, in Marxism Today in January of 1979, called The Great Moving Right Show. I'm going to quote just a few passages here. They're not all from that essay of Stuart Hall, who I think was one of the most kind of articulate explainers of of what Thatcherism was and uh, kind of how it functioned ideologically. Stuart Hall wrote, Mrs. Thatcher speaks to a, quote, new course. She also speaks to something else deep in the English psyche. It's masochism. The need which the English seem to have to be ticked off by nanny and sent to bed without a pudding. The calculus by which every good summer has to be paid for by 20 bad winters. The Dunkirk spirit. The worse off we are, the better we behave. She didn't promise us the giveaway society. She said, iron times, back to the wall, stiff upper lip, get moving, get to work, dig in, stick by the old trial. Verities, the wisdom of old England. This is a different passage from Stuart Hall. Thatcherism translated economic doctrine into the language of experience, moral imperative, and common sense, an alternative ethic to that of the caring society. This translation of a theoretical ideology into a populist idiom was a major political achievement, and the conversion of hard-faced economics into the language of compulsive moralism was in many ways the centerpiece of this transformation. This assault, not just on welfare overspending, but on the very principle and ethic of collective social welfare was mounted not through an analysis of which class of the deserving made most out of the welfare state, but through the emotive language of the scrounger, the new folk devil. So this is an important part of the context for My Beautiful Laundrette and the world of this film as well. This is the 1980s. Britain's manufacturing sector is being liquidated by what the former Labour Chancellor Dennis Healy called a sadomonetarism, a deliberate fiscal and economic policy which understood that this was going to drive unemployment way up, you know, while welfare was being cut. It was going to liquidate Britain's manufacturing base. And in the end ostensibly it was going to create new opportunities and you know people were going to pull themselves up by their bootstraps so that is the world in which this really remarkable film takes place well uh i like this movie uh (laughs) even though it's directed by stephen frears uh (laughs) it's pretty it's pretty wild because i'd never i mean what a a filmography i've loved this film for so many years and i'd never connected it to stephen frears who of course as you pointed out is sort of known like he he did the queen well so you know he's done he's made a lot of movies he made the grifters he made high fidelity he's made uh fine films yeah he made the queen he also made uh more recently florence foster jenkins with meryl streep as that uh i don't even know what that 
it, it's where she plays a rich lady who buys herself an opera career, although she doesn't know how to sing. And uh, it's kind of an inspirational story about uh, believing in yourself. Uh, he also recently directed Victoria and Abdul, which is about the unlikely friendship between Queen Victoria and her Indian servant. Uh, so, so this is the kind of guy we're dealing with here. Well, he made he made this uh, this TV program, this mini series that I think aired on the BBC called A Very English Scandal that I watched a few years ago with Hugh Grant and Ben Wishaw, and I was really excited to watch this. You know, it's it's about the uh, one-time leader of the British Liberal Party, Jeremy Thorpe. And I was kind of thinking like, oh, you know, I, I'm interested in British politics. I'd love to see like a well-made drama about that. And, you know, it's basically a story about how, you know, Jeremy Thorpe uh, had this kind of boy toy played by Ben Wishaw, who he exploited. And I just couldn't really tell what it was even sort of supposed to be about. Uh, I didn't think it was very good. But I'd never connected this output we're talking about to Stephen Frears, who I should say, he, he did at least one other film, which I think is the last in the Blair Brown trilogy that we have yet to watch, which is, which is 2003's The Deal. So whenever we do The Gnome in the Garden Part 3, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to Stephen Freer's The Deal. Well, look, Stephen Freer's, I mean, he's a journeyman filmmaker, a filmmaker of considerable talent, I should say. We were spitballing about what his politics probably were. So, and, so and, I, we were interested, I was interested <laughs> yeah. in this because you watch you watch My Beautiful Laundrette, and this is a man who knows the difference between a liberal and a leftist. This film is one of the most incredibly, like, layered treatments of race and class ever. It's incredible. So anyway, uh, in his personal <laughs> life, he is a British Republican, uh, not to be confused with an American a small Republican. small R, the good kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He signed a letter endorsing the Labour Party under Corbyn in 2019. So, I mean, yeah, what else What else do you need from the <laughs> Comrade guy? Comrade Frears. Uh, the only other thing I know about him is he was president of the jury at the Cannes Film Festival in 2007, which was the year that four months, three weeks, and two days won, the Romanian film about abortion, a very fine film. But um, he gave an interview about his experience on the jury in 2013 that I've always remembered. It was an interview for the BBC. And, you know, it was noted that No Country for Old Men played in competition that year and didn't win anything. And when asked about this, he said, they were very anti-American, the jury, but I kept saying that American films are watched all over the world. This cut no ice with a few bullshy women on the jury. Uh, bullshy. Uh, I'm sure listeners are curious who the women were. Uh, they were Tony Collette, Maggie Chung, and Sarah Polly. Anyway, yes, B-O-L-S-H-Y. So, you know, uh, Stephen Frears is a land of contrasts. Jesus. You know, uh, he's he's endorsing Jeremy Corbyn. He's also saying, what's the deal? American movies are good. Like, 2007 Cannes Film Festival, this is the height of anti-Bush fervor. This is the height of the Iraq War's unpopularity. These are probably the kinds of conversations that were being had on the jury. You can say it's unfair to penalize no country for old men about that but i mean i know i hear i hear that and i'm i'm at least kind of sympathetic to didn't, those didn't didn't, uh, didn't i mean no country for old men won awards at other film festivals i mean so it, won, won it won best picture it won the, at the oscar, oscar so. so it ended up being it ended up being all okay well anyway stephen frears didn't write this movie of course he only directed it but uh, i'm i guess uh, i'm just interested that he's he's capable of this movie and he's also capable of the queen and he's capable of saying that sure uh, he's a journeyman sure well anyway credit to the writer hanif karushi i hope i'm pronouncing that right, who uh, I looked him up and he grew up in Bromley, which is a suburb in South London, South uh, East London, I believe. He was born in 1954 and his parents, one of them was an Englander and the other grew up in Mumbai. My Beautiful Laundrette was uh, originally produced for TV. It was filmed on a six-week schedule. It was going to be on Channel 4, I believe. It was uh, made for only $900,000. Very shoestring budget for the time. But then it was screened at the Edinburgh Film Festival in uh, the summer of 1985. And uh, the people behind it realized that uh, okay, this this is a pretty damn good movie, and it needs to have a UK cinema run, which it got. I still think, in spite of that, you know, it's not as uh, well known as it should be. It is, as I said, in my opinion, one of the great British films of the '80s, if not one of the great British films. The film is a love story between an upwardly mobile boy from an immigrant family from Pakistan and a young white street punk set against the backdrop of Margaret Thatcher's London on the wrong side of the Thames. The boy is Omar, played by Gordon Warnecke. He's in his early 20s, and he has two looming patriarchal authority figures. One is his father, Hussein, a lifelong committed socialist, 
former superstar journalist who has descended into depression and alcoholism. Yeah, I mean, we learned that he was this, you know, famous leftist journalist in uh, Bombay. He had the ear of, you know, one of the Butos. He's become very troubled. Uh, his wife, Omar's mother, has committed suicide uh, a year earlier. There's a lot of layers to this character. He's sympathetic in some ways and certainly much less than sympathetic in others. He's visibly troubled by the rise of uh, the National Front and by the rise of Thatcher in Britain. And he's proven completely unable to acclimatize himself to life in England at all. And Omar at the beginning of the film is basically uh, just taking care of him. And to sort of set the stage for where things begin, there's a line spoken uh, of Omar by somebody else at the start of the film. He's on the dole like everyone else in England. He sweeps dirt from one place to another. The film is full of kind of evocative lines like that that really convey the kind of desolation and alienation of uh, you know, life in Britain for many people at this time. The other patriarchal figure in Omar's life is his uncle Nasser, a self-styled immigrant success story, one who believes in the entrepreneurial spirit and speaks admiringly of Mrs. Thatcher. The future appears to be with Nasser. Omar works in one of the numerous auto garages that his uncle runs before being given an opportunity to run a disused laundromat. The movie centers around the titular laundrette, which is important because it is a completely functional and unromantic business. Nobody has sentimental attachment to their local laundromat. It's the kind of business that immigrants in Western countries build and run and take a lot of great personal satisfaction and meaning for being able to mount and run that kind of business, but not for like the laundry itself. Well, so I mean, Nasser, I think is a really interesting character. Uh, he is completely intoxicated by the rhetoric of Thatcherism. He says to Omar after giving him a job, he says, you'll be with your own people and not on the dole queue. Mrs. Thatcher would be happy with me. And then later, I can't even remember what the context for this remark is, but I'm not sure the context matters. Uh, it's just very memorable. He says, I'm a professional businessman, not a professional Pakistani. There's no room for race in the new enterprise culture. So, you know, Nasser is somebody who takes great pride in his own success. He is married, but he also has a mistress named Rachel, who he loves to take out to fancy restaurants. He loves to buy her things. Nasser is frankly a, a pretty sympathetic character, even if he and I probably would have voted differently. There are other major characters worth mentioning. There's Nasser's daughter, Tanya, who has a lot of momentum behind her as a potential wife for Omar. There is Salim, who's also in the community. He is a very successful drug trafficker who represents another option for a young boy of Omar's background. And then there is Johnny, played by Daniel Day-Lewis in a breakout role. He is Omar's one-time boyhood friend, and there is the implication that he may have had early sexual experiences with him. They're reacquainted when Johnny and some of his punk friends attack Omar and Salim one night in a hate crime. Yeah, o Omar gets involved in Salim's drug trafficking business. He's getting immersed in enterprise culture, and this is part of it. Omar gets, uh, you know, attracted to the idea of becoming self-made and earning. So he gets involved going to and from the airport for Salim and picking up cocaine. They're in the car one night and, you know, this gang of white thugs attack the car. And this is when we're introduced to uh, Johnny Burfoot, as you said, played by Daniel Day-Lewis. Now, I guess I should clarify because we have met him as the audience earlier in the film in a kind of decontextualized way. All that we know is that he's homeless. He appears to be in a kind of transitional phase in his life. And he and Omar clearly have a really deep childhood bond. They've almost certainly been lovers at some point. It's been interrupted by uh, school ending. As we also learn, uh, it's been interrupted because Johnny had become involved for some duration of time, we're not sure, in the National Front. And Omar and his father, Hussein, uh, have apparently saw Johnny in one of these marches some years earlier and uh, were understandably very troubled by it. It feels like the two options for people the age of Omar and Johnny are nihilism or enterprise 
culture. Yeah, I mean, we should say the class politics of this film are very complicated because Omar's family is pretty well-to-do. You know, as we said, his dad was a pretty famous journalist at one point. We see various family settings, you know, these beautiful homes that are probably not in South London. But Omar's family is still subjected to a tremendous amount of racism. I mean, there's a scene where one of uh, Johnny's kind of skinhead friends who's, you know, angry that Johnny has gone to work for Omar in this laundrette. You know, this is, you know, a central part of the narrative in the film is that, you know, Johnny and Omar resume their affair, but then Johnny becomes Omar's sole employee at the laundrette. And one of his skinhead friends is really disturbed to see his friend working for this brown skinned man. And he says, you know, they came here to work for us. That's why we brought them over. You know, and the implication is, you know, now you're working for them and that's disgusting. At the same time, there's a certain amount of class prejudice that comes through even from, you know, somewhat more sympathetic characters uh, like Omar's father, Hussein. There's, I think it might even be my favorite scene in the movie where on the day that they launch the laundrette, Omar's father doesn't come. But then for some reason, he decides to turn up at 3 a.m. when only Johnny is working. They go way back, you know, uh, Johnny and Omar were, uh, were friends as children. And Johnny has actually a very tender relationship to Hussein. Johnny has, by the time we meet him in the film, he seems to be at a transitional phase. He's homeless, he's struggling, but he does have some kind of moral center. He's left the National Front behind. And there's this scene between Johnny and Hussein in the, in the laundrette where, you know, Johnny is sort of tenderly recalling all the great advice that, uh, you know, you gave me when I was growing up. And Hussein replies, what's my advice made of you, Johnny? You used to give us a lot of good advice, sir. When I was little. Now, when you were little, what's it made of you? Are you a politician? Journalist? Trade unionist? No. You're an underpants cleaner. Oh, dear. The working class is such a great disappointment to me. I ain't made much of myself. Um, And then he pauses for a moment and he says, the working class has been such a disappointment to me. It's a remarkable scene. And I think one of the many examples of how incredibly layered this film is, all of these characters are real people. None of them are reducible to one-dimensional archetypes. The film is very generous, I think, in that sense and how it renders its characters. I mean, Tanya, who you mentioned, uh, is another one. I think she's the most important female character in the film. But I mean, it's it's that uh, property that I think makes my beautiful laundrette so special to me. Can I pause here to note how much more dated this movie looks than British films from either the 70s or the 90s, frankly? I feel this way about a lot of British films of the 80s. There's something about the aesthetic of them, about the ways that characters are dressed, about the ways they furnish their apartments. You know, a lot of British films from the 70s look much more timeless than this does. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, of course, Mark Fisher wrote about this, the sense in which, you know, in the late 20th century, time becomes kind of bent and our relationship to the past is kind of contorted and bent in strange ways, such that the 1960s actually feels closer. Um, You know, if we we listen to music from the 60s, we watch British films of the 1960s, they feel closer than the 1980s. There's something kind of strange and alien. And that really comes through in, uh, there's a scene where Johnny and Omar go to a disco. And I mean, it really just looks like if you if you put it up next, I'm just thinking of like what's the first thing from the 1960s that comes into my head, like something like the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, which I think was from 1968. That really seems closer in time. It looks more modern than this disco that Omar and Johnny are standing in. So getting back to the plot, Omar and Johnny resume their romantic relationship. Omar brings Johnny into the laundrette business. The renovation of the laundrette is more ambitious than what Omar has at his disposal. So the two of them continue their involvement in Salim's drug trafficking enterprise just to get a little bit more extra cash. Johnny is sort of uh, pulled against his will, really, into being a sort of enforcer. There's a very troubling scene where he's sent to help evict a guy who's uh, almost certainly immigrated from the West Indies from one of the many like dilapidated uh, flats that we see in the film. Johnny is saying, you know, I'm not going to do violence. I'm, you know, I'm not going to hurt anyone. And then, you know, of course, inevitably a scuffle ensues as they throw this man and all his possessions out of the flat and the man yells back at them, you know, you're an enemy of the third world, which I thought was a nice touch. 
Now, I'd highly recommend watching this film if you haven't seen it. I don't think we're going to run through every beat of the plot, but I do want to say a little more about Tanya, who, as I said, I think is the most important female character in the film. You know, it's funny. I, I feel like at the end of My Beautiful Laundrette, none of the political or, or class tensions are really resolved, but certain characters do find a kind of resolution. And Tanya is one of them. I mean, there's a scene where Omar sort of drunkenly proposes to her and she says, well, if you can if you can make some money, like maybe. But at the end of the day, you know, Tanya is her own person. She does not want to be tied down. Just generationally, she feels differently than the older women we see in the film, both in terms of her family and also, uh, you know, her father's mistress, uh, Rachel, who, uh, who you can actually tell, you know, there's one scene where you can tell Rachel is actually very jealous of Tanya. She says, you know, you don't understand. We're of different generations different classes everything is waiting for you and so tanya at the end you know she just decides i want to i want to get out she actually asks johnny like she's basically comes to the laundromat and she says well i'm leaving do you want to come with me he he decides uh, obviously because he's in love with omar to stay and then there is one of the more tender scenes in the film when uh, nasser his brother uh, who've been quite estranged from one another because of course you know one of them is taken to life in britain quite aggressively and the other one has become completely unable to acclimatize himself at all they have a reconciliation um, which is uh, quite a moving scene but then as they're standing on the balcony and looking out I believe towards the Battersea power station they see Tanya standing on a rail platform uh, and as the train goes by I mean it's kind of almost a touch of sort of soft magic realism here it's not a realistic shot a train goes by without stopping and once it's passed Tanya is gone there's a very powerful symbolism to that we as the audience come to understand that the entrepreneurial spirit that NASA represents is a bit of a mirage. It is, after all, Salim who is... Well, he's not playing by the rules and he's more successful, whereas Nasser's businesses don't seem to be doing very well. And indeed, Salim is keeping up some of these businesses, albeit in a very unstable way. One thing Nasser and Hussein agree on in their climactic conversation is that they represent the past, Omar represents the future, and they begin together uh, strategizing Omar's future. You know, Hussein says, what about a wife? Uh, is, is Tanya a candidate? And, and, then, his, and his father just wants him to go to college. This issue is left unresolved, though. The last shot is on Omar and Johnny washing each other after a, a brutal attack. Yeah, the, the, sk- the skinheads attack the laundrette. Spoiler. And it's, it's uncertain what will happen to them, what will happen to the laundrette, what kind of life is available for either of them individually or together. Although the movie does end on a tender note with their love for each other. Yeah, I want to read here from an essay by uh, the film editor Graham Fuller on My Beautiful Laundrette. He writes of the film and then offers comment on the ending. He says, Whereas it took a cluster of kitchen sink dramas to enfranchise the northern working class in the British cinema of the early 1960s, a single subversive movie did it for the Anglo-Asian community in the 1980s. My Beautiful Laundrette, through a Molotov cocktail of urban chaos, polemical ire, spiky comedy, and mixed-race queer sex into the so-called British film renaissance of 1984 to 86. Its specific critique of post-colonial Britain is achieved through Qureshi's battery of conflicts between whites and Asians, between whites and whites, between the Asian and African diasporas, between Asian brother and brother, between Asian parents and their adult children, between men and women. The fact that Omar and Johnny's sexual relationship is not a source of social conflict, unlike that of Nasser and Rachel, is significant. It's a masterful stroke of gay-straight taboo reversal that proposes that behavior conventional society has historically vilified may be the most likely to promote harmony. And not just in the film's overlapping story strands does it reject the good manners and arid formalism associated with values that endorse middle class and aristocratic values. Freers and Qureshi do not provide solutions to the problems the film raises. At the end, Britain's rich are still getting richer and its poor are still getting poorer. The beautiful laundrette has been trashed. Nasser and Rachel have parted and Tanya has evaporated. Only Omar and Johnny's unity is hopeful. They're left flicking water at each other in a final positive image of hybridity, the cares of the day forgotten with its soap suds. Oh.